0: If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2 in your Bibles. Today we hit pause on our series in the book of Acts to start a new, short, Christmassy series. We're calling it Waiting for the King. We'll look at a few different passages over these few Sundays that are before Christmas ahead of us. And some of these passages will deal with Jesus' first coming, like our passage today, and then others will sort of mingle his first coming and all that that entailed while looking ahead to his second coming. And I hope you don't think that that's odd, that at Christmas time we would be thinking about Christ's first and second coming. In the Christian tradition, the month of December is often called Advent. Advent means coming. So Advent is a time where we remember and somewhat relive... The wait, the anticipation, the longing of God's people who were before Jesus came. And then through their eyes, we see him coming. We thank God that we're on this side of him coming. But in a similar way that those who looked for Jesus to come in his first coming, so we today anticipate, long for, hope in, pray towards him coming again god's people are awaiting people whether we're talking old or new testament but are we are we awaiting people still today are you waiting what are you waiting for Let's test this out with Christmas. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you are waiting for Christmas? And by that, I mean you are longing for Christmas. You are anticipating Christmas. You are itching for Christmas. Raise your hand. That's certainly not all. I'd like to interview the rest of you after the service who didn't raise your hand to find out why. No, I, I can relate. How many of you, go raise your hand again, would like to see Christmas come sooner than later?" Well, a few of you, it's usually the kids that raise their hands for that. We adults hit the month of December and we would like a brake pedal to slow things down. Kids hit the month of December and they would like a gas pedal to speed things up. I think it was Tim Keller who I once heard say, when I was a kid, Christmas came every three years. And now that I'm, you know, middle-aged, it comes every three months. <laughs> or so it seems, right, you get the point. It also seems that the older, at least I get, the less waiting I do in general. I don't wait much these days. If I drop the car off at Jippy Lube for an oil change, I don't really wait. I work, right? This is a smartphone culture and, and era, and there are things you can do that are productive, or at least entertaining. We can do things with our phone. We can get things done. We, we go to the bank line, and we're there, and it looks like we're waiting, but we don't really wait these days. We just do the next thing, and the next thing. We fill it in with something. So I got to questioning How much of a waiting people are we? How well do we wait these days? Now, whether we drastically change our habits with tech or schedules, Christians still today have to figure out how to be a waiting people. They need to learn how to increasingly wait well. And two people who model that for us, about as well as any others in the Bible, are Simeon and Anna. That's in Luke 2. We're going to look at Simeon and Anna and their encounter with the, the infant Jesus, now maybe 48 days old. And Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple to present him and to make sacrifices. And Simeon and Anna had been waiting for this very moment. Let's start reading in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... The daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We'll stop there. Rembrandt, in the 17th century, was so taken by this biblical scene that he painted it or sketched it eight different times. As far as I can tell, he painted this scene more than any other historical event even more than the birth of Christ or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. But this morning, let us not be taken up by or occupied with Rembrandt's artwork of this scene, though it's great. Google it. Look it up. Let's not even be moved by the scene itself as if it's just an intriguing story. Let's not even simply learn from the examples of Simeon and Anna who were waiting patiently with endurance and hope. Let's do that, follow their example that is, by primarily gazing upon what they gazed upon that day. Christ. This passage is not primarily about Simeon or Anna or you or me but about Christ. Christ is the one whom they were waiting for and longing for, whom they saw that day and were forever changed by it. Let's start with their longing. We'll have four themes from this passage. The first is godly longing. Before they see this son, they long for him. Their longings and their experiences with Jesus in the story sort of mirror each other so closely that really they can be treated together. We can consider Simeon's story and Anna's story alongside each other. They're representative, really, of what we call in the Bible the remnant of Israel, the godly remnant. Remnant means a small part for the whole. And in the Bible, the remnant are the few and the faithful in times where there's generally misdirection and waywardness. Well, Simeon and Anna, of course, are among the faithful in these days. Simeon was righteous and devout. We're told the Holy Spirit was upon him, which was special and unusual in Old Covenant times. I mean, that's what King Saul had and what King David had and and what the the temple architects and musicians had. They had the Holy Spirit upon them. Anna was a prophetess, meaning she received miraculous revelation from God. We're told in verse 37 that she ministered in the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying night and day. And both Simeon and Anna had done this a long time. We get the impression about Simeon that he was old because he's probably close to death at this point. With Anna, we're told pretty explicitly she's 84, it says in verse 37, or possibly even older. The Greek could mean that she was a widow for 84 years and married seven years before that. And, of course, not married at the age of zero. So this is a woman who could be well into her triple digits. And old age and faithfulness to the Lord and what they have received by way of miraculous revelation from the Lord all come together in their longing. Simeon is longing for, you see at verse 25, the consolation of Israel. What does consolation mean? Well, the next verse helps us. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw the Christ. So we have a person and a result that comes from that person. The Christ and the consolation. The Christ, of course, is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. It is the the sum total of the message in the New Testament. But as as far as Genesis 3.15, God was talking about a seed of the woman who would come. In Genesis 12, it was the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 49, it's a ruler that's going to come from the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Deuteronomy 17, there's a king coming. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet who's like Moses who's going to come someday. He's the anointed one, the son of David. And David's Lord. He's the Emmanuel child born of a virgin, according to Isaiah. He is God himself who comes, according to Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi. He's the son of man who inherits the world and rules the nations. These are not separate people. These are different ways of describing in different eras and epics of God's redemptive plan, the one the promised one, the answer, or the Christ. And he comes to bring consolation or comfort. Isaiah 40 might come to mind if you're a good Bible student. Isaiah 40, after, after 39 chapters of woe and, and, and trouble, A corner is turned in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to her. Because her iniquity, that is her sin, is pardoned, it says in Isaiah 40. It's put in the present tense, not because it was happening right there in the present tense in Isaiah's day, but because it was as good as done someday in the future. In Isaiah 52, it's put in the past tense. Break forth into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Well, that was still to come, but it's as good as done. But in Isaiah's timeline, it was still a far way to come. Some six to 700 years, Isaiah is writing these promises before they ever happen before the comforter comes, before the Christ is seen. So just picture this. Feel this. Big, big promises. Multiplying promises. Growing in their significance and weight and glory. Just hanging out there like giant matzo balls without any... Reality yet, not at least in their fullness. Add to that thousands of years, even before Isaiah's time, where God's people were waiting, waiting for the promises, waiting for true healing, waiting for final forgiveness, waiting for the one. All the while, their sins are piling up. Can you feel something of the angst among the righteous? I'd encourage you today to read Psalm 132, a great psalm that will help you feel this angst where the promises of God are on this side and reality is over here and the psalmist has to wrestle between himself and God about what, what's going to happen and what God's up to. The promises are here, reality looks quite different. Has God forgotten? Has he given up? Of course he hasn't. And two people who know that as well as any people in the first century are Simeon and Anna. They're waiting for redemption. Simeon wants to see the Lord's Christ. He's been given this promise that he will see the Lord's Christ before he dies. They're both tireless and undistracted in their longing for God to bring this event and this person and the results that come from Him. Don't we have to ask some personal questions of ourselves at this point? Like, what are we longing for? What do we want? What are we focused on? What are we looking forward towards? What is our life? What's it made up of? What, what fills it? What fulfills us? What would fill you to the full today? Yeah, we could play genie and say, you got one wish, what is it? We have to ask if our view of the world and priorities is shaped by the Bible or something else. We have to ask if our hope is being placed in something other than God and His promises. We are to live in this world, not cut ourselves off from it, but we have to recognize that there are competing voices going on in our heads all the time. At least there better be. There are competing visions. The world has this vision and they announce it to us with a constant megaphone seeking to brainwash us, seeking to, seeking to get us to buy into these longings and this fulfillment and these hopes and dreams. And there in the background, God is whispering through prophets written down in an old book, that he's better than all that the world offers. That he is up to something. That he is bringing his plan to pass. That he is making all things new. That he will come. That he will finish what he started. That he's not done. That he's not fallen asleep and he's not snoozing. With Anna and Simeon, it doesn't matter to them who else was with them. I think that's important to note here. We might think of Anna and Simeon as sort of like ministry buddies or prayer partners, but there's none of that in the text. I think, if anything, Luke wants to paint a picture for us in this portion of Luke where all the important people aren't that important, and they're pretty alone. Yeah, Mary had Joseph. That's about it. Well, I know she she had a cousin, but the cousin had Mary and that was about it she also had a husband but i mean but 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 Luke keeps emphasizing the the singularity of those who are getting this from God angel comes to Elizabeth and angel comes to Mary and angel comes to Joseph and now we have the widow Anna and Simeon who is nowhere to be found in the rest of the Bible or in ancient history. God is revealing himself to babes, to nobodies. If you know the Bible, these aren't nobodies to you, but they were in these days. These were far from the movers and shakers of the ancient world. King Herod isn't in on this. According to Matthew's account, he wants to get in on it, but for his own purposes. And so he's not in on it. Who is in on it? Little old Mary from Galilee. Foreigners from afar. Shepherds without names. Anna from the forgotten tribe of Asher, way up north. And Simeon. And then there was a time when the waiting came to an end. The longing was fulfilled. Their faith was turned to sight. They saw salvation. Secondly, let's talk about seeing salvation. That's what Simeon says about what he sees. We're not given a lot of details about what's going on here. It had to be that both Anna and Simeon were given miraculous revelation to recognize that this baby is no ordinary baby. This is the baby. Isn't it interesting? There's not even a dialogue going on. It's not Simeon walking up to Mary and Joseph and saying, "Uh, this is kind of awkward. I do this all the time. But uh, I'm just wondering, um, is that the promised one? And they go, (laughs) yeah, it is. We're not used to this, you know. There's none of that. He he sees this baby, and he simply grabs it and holds it up like like the Lion King. He knows it's the one. It's the one. And Anna knows as well. Simeon blessed God. He held out the baby. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Anna began to give thanks to God, and then began to speak of him to all who are also waiting for the redemption, that's to come. Simeon tells God, I'm now ready to die. You fulfilled your word to me that I wouldn't die till I saw the Christ. I saw the Christ. I touched him. That's it. Take me home. I'm done. My work here is done. What an incredible outlook on life. What a rare outlook on life. I think many of us would look at a guy like that and think, That's a dude who may have wasted his life praying, going to church, waiting, rehearsing the promises. So he can see a baby. And then he sees this baby and he just says he's done. His work is over. This is a guy the world says who doesn't finish well, he's a quitter. What a waste. But that perspective misses how centralized and singular his hope was. His hope wasn't ultimately or fully in kids or grandkids or great-grandkids or ease or travel or retirement. His hope wasn't fixed on making a name for himself. He'd put all his marbles into this one basket Christ, Because God has put all of his marbles or promises into this one basket, the Christ. He is the funnel in which all the old stuff goes in. And he is the one through which all in the New Testament goes out. He's the answer. And so... The groans of saints in millennia past are finding their relief and expression here in this moment when these two Old Testament prophets see Christ. All of those prayers for God to do more, to get going, all those questions, how long, O Lord, They've been building up and building up and building up and and now there's relief. Of course he can go home. Some of you parents have had or you currently have teenagers who are old enough to drive or maybe even old enough to, to go do something and stay out later than your preferred bedtime. And so you know that experience of waiting for them to come home. You wouldn't be up otherwise than just you're there to wait for them to come home. You, you have your cell phone close by in case there's a problem. You, you maybe are praying for safety. Maybe you're checking in here or there. But you're waiting and you're waiting and then, and then they arrive. And you breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not usually the one in my, my marriage relationship who's the one staying up and waiting for the kids to come home. My wife does better at that than I do. But when I am the one who receives the kids who were out late, I really don't care how it went when they get home if it's pretty late. I, you can tell me in the morning, you're here, that's great, thank the Lord, kiss on the forehead, lights out, man, I'm done. I'm done. I don't care how it went. I mean, I, I kind of do, but, but not really. Well, that's what the relief, that's what Simeon felt, times a million. Because it's not just a teenager who'd been gone for four hours having fun and made it through Albuquerque traffic back home. This is salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is the consolation. This is peace and light and glory and redemption. Jesus is the fulcrum point on which all creation rests. And Simeon and Anna breathe their collective sighs of relief on behalf of millennia of saints that came before over millennia of years. What a moment. And yet, thirdly, there's more to come. There is. Because God the Son didn't take on flesh just for them or just for this moment. No, Simeon knows it. In light of the Christ babe in his arms, he speaks of this as God's salvation, verse 30. And then verse 31, which has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. Or verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This isn't just for Simeon and Anna. It's not even just for Israel. It's for the world, for the peoples. This thing is going global. And so there are a hand, feet, hand what's the word? Handful. that's it. Handful of people at this time who know that the Christ is here. But the rest of Luke and the whole book of Acts unpacks that. There's more to come. Maybe that's why the father and mother marveled at what was said about him. This doesn't just mean that they smiled with a wink. They said, aw, shucks, we're so proud of him. And they're amazed, but not just amazed like they get it. It's, they wondered what was said about him. It's perplexing. It's amazing, yes. It's wonderfully good, sure. It keeps getting bigger and better with every new encounter around them. But this is head-scratcher stuff. I mean, Jesus is for the Gentiles. This thing's going global. By the end of Luke, it's all pretty clear. Here's a great summary statement of the story. Here's the message that has to go out to the whole world. Luke 24, 46, Jesus says, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer. That's the cross, which has already happened at this point. And on the third day, rise from the dead, which had just happened. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations that's where this thing's going. Here's why he came. The forgiveness of sins. How did he obtain forgiveness of sins? He had to suffer and rise. And so our hope doesn't rest merely on him coming or or just on his teaching or his example. But it has to center on the cross in resurrection. Without that, We've just got teaching. We've just got a miracle story and a baby. No, we need a Savior. We need the forgiveness of sins. The Bible addresses for us what the problem is, what the solution is, and how you need to respond to make it your own, to receive it as yours. Al Moller, president of Southern Seminary I've quoted this before, but it's so fitting I needed to say it again. He says, If all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, a Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, well, Oprah will do. But if we need a Savior, only Jesus will do. Now, that requires even further clarification because a Savior from what is a question we should all ask and hopefully have the right answer to. It might help if we look back a chapter. Look look to Luke chapter 1, where here we see Zechariah's prophecy. And in it, we can see some of the possible misunderstandings in these days regarding the kind of Savior that's needed and what the right kind of Savior is. So let's try to think of what it was like in these days and what kind of Savior most first century Jews would be looking for. So look at verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. What do you mean, Zechariah? What do you mean, redeem? How? Redeem from what? Well, verse 71, that we should be saved from, okay, we're getting there. What is it? Our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, this is a fitting line for much of the Old Testament. Salvation, redemption, in large part, in much of the Old Testament, meant removing enemies who are in our way and keeping us from peace and possessing the land. Many people in the first century expected Messiah to do that again, to come and clean out the Romans and give the, the Holy Land some rest. Well, Zechariah wasn't wrong but you can see how some would pick up in some things pick up on some things in his prophecy and overlook other things so let's read on verse 72 of Luke 1 he says to show the mercy promised to our fathers oh wait the fathers need mercy yeah apparently look at verse 77 To give knowledge of salvation to his people. What's salvation? Removal of those sinners over there? No, in the forgiveness of their sins. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Us. He equates with those who sit in darkness. You see, it's wide open now. Jew and Gentile. The good news is detached from ethnicity and open to any who know that they need mercy. It's for all who recognize that they're in darkness. If you don't think that you're in darkness then you don't see a need for this kind of Messiah to come. Do you see? Now, you may have a different misunderstanding about Jesus and what kind of Messiah he is. It may not be the same as those in the first century, but we should be aware of the possibility of thinking we're hearing this gospel aright and yet we're missing it totally. There is the possibility that we, like Jesus, And yet he didn't actually come for us. And yes, you heard that right. I didn't put it too strongly. If we have Luke 5 in mind, he didn't come for some in some ways. He says in Luke 5, those who are well, they don't have any need of a physician. They don't go to the doctor. Forget well checks and things like that that we do today. They didn't back then. You go to the doctor when you're sick and Jesus says, I came to call the sick into the hospital, or to put it in religious terms, I came to call the righteous, I'm sorry, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The so-called righteous don't think they need to repent. Why bother telling them to? But sinners, yeah, they can repent. They can come to the physician and be made well. You just got to recognize it. It's wide open. And yet, forth, there are words of warning right here in the middle of all this. There's a gracious word of warning towards Mary, verse 35 a sword will pierce through your own soul, most likely referring to the crucifixion, where Mary, with other women, watched Jesus die. So already back in Luke 2, we see what's to come. Pain, rejection, sorrow. And because of that rejection, Simeon can talk about those who reject him. In these kind of terms, verse 34, this, a chi- this child is appointed for the fall in rising of many. He's a sign that is opposed. Verse 35, he reveals hearts. Jesus is either a stumbling block that people trip over and want to kick, or he is the stepping stone into eternal glory with God the Father. He's not anything in between. So if you're not yet a Christian, could I encourage you to go back in your mind and think through that question of what kind of Savior you think you need. We all think we need a Savior. We all have saviors. Yours might be a philosophy, a way of life. It might be a different God than Jesus, a different so-called God. You might look at Christianity and roll your eyes. You might roll your eyes at this baby in Luke 2, thinking that, Humanity's salvation can't come in something so common and so quaint and so cute as a baby. Well, you'd be right to to, to think that God doesn't just save by merely the birth of a baby. We read on in the story and there's a crucifixion and a resurrection. You, You read backwards in this long story we call the Bible... And you see all kinds of stories of God using surprising and seemingly upside down methods, according to our reasoning, to show his power and his glory and salvation. I mean, if you get familiar with the Bible enough, you come to the Christmas story and you say, yeah, that sounds about right. He's going to save the world with a baby. (laughs) That's the way our God works. That's our God. Now if you read on in the story past the birth and into the crucifixion and you think that salvation couldn't possibly be accomplished in something so gruesome and violent as a death and a cross. Well friend, you don't understand sin and guilt apparently. Sin is that ugly. Our guilt is that heinous and heavy. It required nothing less than the murder of the Son of God. For us to be saved. And if you read on in the story and you came to the resurrection and you say, that's, that's my hang up right there, you roll your eyes and think that's not realistic. It's not scientific that a man is raised from the dead. Well, you don't know what kind of God we're talking about here. He's the God who is the architect of, of any and all science. And so he can just trump science whenever he wants. He doesn't doesn't have your science idolatry like, like many of us do in this age. If we think the resurrection just isn't realistic, and hence we're quick to dismiss it, we don't realize what was actually needed. We've missed what is this huge problem in humanity. The biggest problem in humanity is not ISIS or North Korea or this regime or that presidency or that aggravating neighbor across the street. It's our own human hearts. The sin in them lead us to death, and people just keep dropping left and right. I know we, we, we get the flowers out, we box them up, and we try not to think about it. That's how we deal with death in our culture. But here's this thing, death. What's the answer? Jesus dying and defeating death. We need one who would conquer death. We need nothing less than a resurrection or else stinking death is always around. If you think that this is all just wishful thinking and just the imaginations of those who want some explanation for the guilt that they experience and even some mechanism to make them feel better about their guilt. I think I would just turn the tables back on you and ask you a question. What are you doing with your guilt? I know, you're pretending you don't have it. We all do that. But what are you doing with your guilt? Where's it going? Are you burying it, hiding it, covering it up? Where do you turn for consolation, for comfort, and for peace? Shopping? What? What's the answer? Well, according to Anna and Simeon, it's Jesus. He's the answer. The Son of God coming in the flesh, dying on a cruel cross for sins and sinners, being raised in God's power on the third day and living victoriously forever and ever and now ruling over all creation, That's my answer to guilt. That's where my hope lies. So like Anna did that wonderful day today with you, I speak to you about the one that we've been waiting for. He's come. Believe on him. I invite you, like Simeon did, to take up the Savior in your arms, to bless God today, to give thanks to him. And with Simeon, I warn you, there's no neutrality with him. He either rises or we fall. He is for the rise and fall of many. He does reveal hearts. When some people have their hearts revealed, yeah, they're angry, they resist, they want to fight, or they want to flee. But with some people, by God's grace, as a miracle of his kindness, some people have their hearts revealed by God. And it's dark. It's dark in all of our hearts. It's hard to see. But they have the courage and the faith to go to Jesus for true and real healing. You can. He's that kind. He's that much of a good physician. Christians, let us long for God's salvation and glory and peace and redemption and consolation being revealed more and more, broader and deeper. Let's hold him out to the world. Let's speak of him like Hannah did. Let's thank God this morning afresh for the immense privilege of living on this side of the manger It's not a given that we would be on this side of the manger, or that we would live in a place where the gospel is readily available to us, and we've heard it. Let alone that He opened our eyes to see that we would believe it. Are you kidding? I mean, who among us, if you have this gift of grace and mercy, and you know this Christ, how can we complain? How can we think that tomorrow is going to be that hard? Let's join the saints of all ages with more holy waiting, longing, anticipation. Let us long more and wait better than we did yesterday. What would waiting better look like for you? What would it mean to wait well in 2018 Well, I scribbled some notes down in between services, and I have a few. I think it would mean holy restlessness in a fallen world. I think it would mean some experience of angst and even righteous indignation and burdens and sorrows for the grief and the wickedness around us. I think waiting well would mean that we soak him up wherever we can. We want more of him, and one day we'll have it. In the meantime, let's go for as much as we can. In heaven, we will have a buffet of God's glory as we behold our sacrificed and risen Savior. In the meantime, we have his word. Let's use it, let's talk about it, and encourage each other in it. Let's set our minds on heaven like Colossians 3 teaches us to do. That's where our citizenship is. That's where we're going. Let's think about it more. Let's talk about it more. Let's just fix our minds on it. Let's set our hope on his return, like 1 Peter 1 says. Consciously set your hope on what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Consciously put it there and not someplace else. And lastly, lastly, I think if we're going to wait well in 2018, we're going to rest secure even now, even amidst the waves and the seeming chaos around us. We're going to rest. He came. He's the king. His reign is invisible right now, but it's there. And one day it'll be visible. Just as sure as his first coming came to be, so his second coming will come to be. Everything he's promised in the meantime even when it doesn't feel like it's there and that he's working, it's there. He's working. He's holding us. He's getting us through. We can rest secure. I think that's what it means to wait well. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we join those saints before Jesus first was born, saying, come, you who were born, who was born to set us free from our fears and from our sins, we say, let us find our rest in thee. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your glorious plan for who you are, We thank you for this season of Advent. Lord, to look back on your first coming and to grow in our longingness for you to come again. Until you come, Lord, give us endurance, give us boldness. Give us a heart that longs for you, as much of you as we can get until we're with you in glory. And even a heart that longs for more, Someday when you come again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.